Welcome to KMUZ Theater Talk. I'm Ann McBride. And I'm Ed Shopes. And we're here the first and third Fridays of the month to tell you all about what's happening in the Mid-Willamette Valley Theater world. Before we get started, I want to thank each and every one of you who stepped up and donated to our Power Up campaign. If you haven't contributed yet, there's still a need and a place to donate. Just go to kmuz.org, click on the pledge to your favorite show, and donate to KMUZ Theater Talk. We've got a lot to get to today with three different theater interviews, so let's get going. On today's program, we'll talk with director Robert Salberg about The Prom, a modern musical opening at the Pentacle Theater in Salem, March 1st. And in our second interview segment, we'll talk with actors and the assistant director from The Revolutionists, opening at the Majestic Theater in Corvallis, March 8th. And in our third interview, we'll talk with Jeremiah Price, director of Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose, which will be coming to Corbin University's Theater March 7th. But first, let's get started with our Theater Talk calendar. Albany Civic Theater at albanycivic.org. Coming to ACT March 1st through 9th is Eclipsed, a play about the Magdalene Laundries in Ireland, directed by Charlotte J. Hedrick. You can hear our interview with the director and some of the actors on our KMUZ Theater Talk podcast. Auditions for the play Carla Boy happen March 4th and 5th at Albany Civic Theater. You can find out more about the play and auditions at albanycivic.org. Brush Creek Playhouse at brushcreekplayhouse.com. The Brush Creek Players are opening the 2024 season with Jack and the Beanstalk, written by Michael and Emily Wood and directed by Linda Zellner. This annual children and youth production opens Friday, March 1st, and runs three weekends, closing March 17th. Children's Educational Theater is at cetsalem.org, and online registrations are open for CET's five-week summer theater experience for students from grades 3 through 12. Go to cetsalem.org to secure a spot for your kiddos. The Elsinore Theater at elsinoretheater.com. For information about local events and touring shows on stage at the Elsinore, go to their website and Facebook page. Gallery Theater at gallerytheater.org. It's the final weekend for See How They Run, the zany British farce directed by Britt Block on the gallery stage through March 3rd. And then Romeo and Juliet, Choose Your Own Ending, opens at Gallery Theater March 22nd and runs through April 7th. In this Shakespearean take on the Choose Your Own Ending model, the audience votes throughout each performance to determine which course true love will take, ultimately deciding basically, whether everybody lives or everybody dies. It's an irreverent, madcap reimagining of Shakespeare's most beloved romance. Kaiser Homegrown Theater at kaiserhomegrowntheater.org. Kaiser Homegrown's second show of the 2024 season is Silent Sky by Lauren Gunderson, coming up April 12th through 28th. The Majestic Theater is on Facebook, and at Majestic.org. The Revolutionists, a play by Lauren Gunderson and directed by Lee Matthews Brock, runs March 8th through 17th at the Majestic Theater. We'll interview the assistant director and two actors from the show later in today's program. 
Mid-Valley Musical Theater at mvmtheater.org and on Facebook at Mid-Valley Musical Theater. Auditions for their summer musical, Mamma Mia, are June 8th. And go to the website for details. Pentacle Theater is at pentacletheater.org. Opening tonight at Pentacle Theater is The Prom, a musical by Begulin, Martin, and Sklar. It runs March 1st through 23rd. And we'll hear more about the show from director Robert Salberg later in today's Theater Talk program. Open auditions for the drama Boy Gets Girl by Rebecca Gilman are coming up March 16th at Pentacle Theater's downtown Salem Rehearsal Studio. That show is directed by Emily Loberg, and you can find more information about auditions on Pentacle Theater's website and on Facebook. And don't forget that uh, Joe Dodge's acting workshop for actors 18 and older is at Pentacle Theater's rehearsal studio in downtown Salem. To sign up for this year's spring classes, go to tickets.pentacletheater.org. The Salem Playhouse at thesalemplayhouse.com. They also offer acting classes for both kids and adults at Kaiser Homegrown Theater and adult classes at Chemeketa Community College. To sign up, go to thesalemplayhouse.com and click on the classes tab. Spotlight Community Theater is at spotlightcommunitytheater.org. And coming to Spotlight May 9th through 19th is the Shakespeare Takeoff Much Ado Out West by Wade Bradford and directed by Shannon Rempel. Struts and Frets Theater Company at strutsandfretstheater.org. Struts and Frets presents Little Women, March 28th through 30th at the Dallas Event Center. It's adapted from the Louisa May Alcott classic novel by prolific playwright Kate Hamill and directed by Terry Kitagawa. We will have an interview with Hannah Fawcett, who plays Joe, on our next edition of KMUZ Theater Talk. Corbin University is at corbin.edu slash theater dash arts. And coming up March 7th through 17th, Corbin will stage Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose, based on the tales of Charles Perrault and the Brothers Grimm. Director Jeremiah Price joins us later on today's program with the details. Western Oregon University at wou.edu slash theater. The modern musical Spring Awakening runs through March 9th at Western. Set in late 19th century Germany, Spring Awakening tells the story of teenagers discovering their budding sexuality through a folk-infused alternative rock score. You can hear more about it from director Michael Phillips and two actors from the show on our KMUZ Theater Talk podcast. And on May 29th through June 1st, John Proctor is the villain, will be on stage at the Rice Auditorium, and that's directed by Rice of Fleming. Well, I'm at university at wutheater.com. Brian Friel's Irish family masterwork, Dancing at Lunasa, directed by Susan Cormell, will come to Willamette's Pelton Theater stage April 11th through 27th. McKay High School on Facebook at McKay Thespians. The spring musical at McKay will be Little Shop of Horrors, May 10th through 18th. McNary High School is on Facebook at Ken Collins Theater. Shakespeare's classic Twelfth Night runs May 15th through 18th at McNary High. 
North Salem High School on Facebook at NSHS Theater. Tuck Everlasting will be on stage at North April 11th through 20th, and that's followed by Sense and Sensibility playing May 23rd through 25th. South Salem High School is on Facebook at Saxon Drama. It's the final weekend for the Alibis playing in the Rose Theater at South High through March 2nd. Then on March 8th and 11th, an evening of original devised works by South Theater students. And that's followed by 12 Angry Jurors playing May 10th through 18th. Sprague High School, Bye Bye Birdie closes March 2nd at Sprague. You have only have two more chances to see it. And one act happened at Sprague on April 11th through the 20th. Staten High School is on Facebook at Staten High School Theater. And Staten High is staging the pop musical Mamma Mia this weekend, March 1st through 3rd. West Salem High School, and uh, that's on Facebook at West Salem Drama Department. You only have two more chances to see the Shakespeare favorite Much Ado About Nothing at West Salem High. It runs through March 2nd. And Radium Girls comes to the, the West Salem High stage May 16th through 25th. And that wraps up our KMUZ Theater Talk calendar for plays around the Mid-Willamette Valley. Coming up next, Anne and I talk with director Robert Salberg about the musical The Prom, opening at Pentacle Theater tonight. And we'll be back with more KMUZ Theater Talk right after this short break. We're speaking with Robert Salberg, director of the musical The Prom, which opens at the Pentacle Theater March 1st. Welcome to Theater Talk again, Robert. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Hey, Robert. This is a musical that I'm not really familiar with. I didn't really didn't know it until you proposed it for the season at Pentacle Theater. Can you tell us a little bit about the show? So The Prom is a contemporary musical about a young woman in Edgewater, Indiana, and her desire to go to the prom with her girlfriend. And of course, the town is on edge because God forbid two girls go to a dance together. And so uh, they are struggling to work with the community to not cancel the prom. And in the middle of all of that, we have some eccentric and narcissistic Broadway stars who are looking for a redemption cause to not only feed their egos, but hopefully detract from the negative reviews of their latest show. And they go to Indiana on a mission to right the wrongs and allow the town to not cancel the prom. And of course, things don't go the way they hope it goes. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Interesting thing is it's so delicious. It's filled with theater jokes and it's, it's so much fun. <laughs> you know, when you do a show like this, you hope the audience gets a lot of those things. Theater yeah. people theater people will get a lot of them. There's a lot of um, poking fun at themselves and poking fun at celebrity and poking fun at kind of how uh, we as a society treat celebrities and how celebrities view themselves. And so there's a lot of humor around that. And then there's some definite like inside theater jokes and uh, the 
the lyricist and the person who wrote the music, they have done a very creative job of paying homage to some definite types of songs you hear in musicals and Oh. Uh, the the lyrics are very witty and, and if you if you're paying attention you will um get some some subtle jokes that maybe you would only hear in the music without listening to what they're saying so uh, there's a lot of embedded jokes inside of there that um keep it fun and fresh and i think the show pokes fun at probably both sides of the aisle in terms of conservatism and what you might call wokeness to a certain extent. Yes. yes. So, you know, it's an, it's an equal opportunity offending show, I think in certain <laughs> instances, but there's definitely a lean to the progressive side of how society maybe views uh, the world. Well, it was a really popular show when it opened, and uh, uh, you know, some people said, "Gee, I thought this problem would be solved by now, but here we are again." Right? Right. The show wasn't even on my radar, and I took a group of kids to New York, and one of them, their desire was to see the show, and I thought, "God, a show about a prom? Really? Like, we're still doing this?" I was one of those people who thought this isn't relevant anymore. Like, this was headlines from the two thousands, and. As I watched it and I looked at what was going on politically and the whole canceling of drag story time and how dangerous mm-hmm. people were saying that is and the the indoctrination that's happening and all of that, I was like, wow, this is actually way more relevant than I thought it really was. And watching the show, it, I, it was hilarious. I saw it with the original cast and one of the most amazing Broadway talents, Beth Level, played... Mm-hmm. Um, Dee Dee Allen, the the famous Broadway star in the show, and she's she originated the role of the drowsy chaperone, and she's oh yeah, re- a remarkable woman. And um, so I saw it, and I thought I went into it not sure how I would like it, and I I was laughing the entire time, and I I would have watched. I mean, literally, I saw it the week it closed. If I had been there again, I probably would have went back to watch it one more time. So you know, it's kind of hard not to love a show that has great music and uh skewers broadway from every perspective (laughs) yeah oh yeah no it's 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 that it's there's heart to it there's definitely heart to it but there's so much fun that happens um and so much so many jokes and and things that um it's hard not to smile through it but at the same time there's a great message that exists as well how big is your cast for this show we have a cast of 30. So, wow. um, you know, it's a big, it's a yeah. big show. There's, you know, what, one thing when you do a show like this, it's just always a challenge to create a town and you need uh, adults and you need teenagers. And, you know, there's, there's four named teenage roles outside of the two girls mm-hmm. that want to go to prom together. And so I always want the sense of a community when you're doing a show about a town like this. And yeah. so, um, you know, we have a we have our our named uh, lead characters, but we have a uh, also an ensemble of uh, teens at the high school, and we have an ensemble of adults that play not only the parents and the PTA and all of that, but there's you know some other um, featured ensemble roles that the adults play as well. So lots of people play multiple characters. There's the you know the adults play like I said the parents and the PTA, but there's also a fun 
appearance by the non-equity cast of Godspell. Yes, um, in the show, and so uh, you know, there's there's these B-level thespians traveling around Indiana <laughs> as well that make an appearance. So you know, there, there's some fun things that happen, and so having a cast that's sizable just allows for that feeling that this is you know not just three parents inside of a gym set yelling about the prom so yeah yeah speaking of getting 30 people on stage together one of the things that i've been following on pinnacle theater's community facebook page is technical director chris benham has been working his tail off to create a giant revolving stage for this show we do yep tell us how you're going to use that robert because it looks huge it's a big revolve you know, in terms of musical set complexity, the revolve a revolve's always difficult, but this is definitely not the most complex set we've attempted, uh, but it's a beast in and of its own because we're attempting to do a revolve that's done by a machine or that's done by an, uh, a motor. So it just allows for themeless set changes. And when we are doing a show with 30 people and you've got multiple locations and all of that, Really what I wanted in a set design was something that would allow for that seamless transition from scene to scene. And so we use the Revolve quite often, and it takes us from one location to another in the moment without blackouts. And it allows us just to move those scenes in a more fluid way. But it sounds really complicated. How's it going? Uh, Well, yesterday was our tech rehearsal, and that was the first day that we practice with the revolve and you know it actually went fairly smoothly great we started at 11 and we were done by 4 30 and we'd gotten all of our cues so really the timing of the lights and the revolve happening at the same time in time with the music and making sure the scene change music is long enough um that's what we spent a lot of time yesterday doing and there's some kinks to work out as you can expect after the first yeah tech day but um i think it's going to work fine i think it'll be exactly what we need um i've done a show with three revolves in the past so one revolve doesn't scare me a revolve is always a challenge um experimenting now with a with a motor revolve will be interesting to see how reliable that is um (laughs) for the run of a show but um yeah i mean musicals always require uh something a little bit harder usually than what you would expect given the set requirements and the location requirements and we go from a high school gym to a high school hallway to the principal's office to a hotel to a monster truck rally to 7-Eleven to Applebee's back to a hotel room back to another kid's bedroom so I mean yeah yeah we can't legitimately do all those things and we're not pretending like we are so um so much of it is about suspension of disbelief and what you can do with lights and then that revolve allows for um, some some good transitions from one thing to another without it taking forever. One thing I really always tell people that I really appreciate about the show is for the first time that I can think of is the the, the principal is not the villain in this show. (laughs) The principal so often in shows about high school and conflict amongst kids in schools or whatever, the principal's always the villain and people are upset at the principal and the principal is the one, <laughs> you know, and enforcing the rules. And what I really love about this show is that the principal is on the student side and he's trying to do what's best for kids. And that's often the reality of 
conflicts at school is the principals really trying to do what's right. And it's really the parents that are the instigators <laughs> and the aggressors. And I think this show does a really good job of portraying maybe the parents as the instigators and the ones not understanding society mm -hmm. versus it being about the school being the bad guy. Yes. And as an educator, you would want that. Well, I live it on a daily basis that we're trying to do what's <laughs> right or what we feel is mm -hmm. right. And we're met by parents who think they know better or parents who don't agree. And oftentimes that can be the source of the conflict, not just because the school's trying to be antagonistic. Well, folks, The Prom is the winner of the Drama Desk Award for Best Musical. It's filled with humor and heart. It skewers classical musical comedy. And it still uh, comes with a message that resonates with audiences today more than ever. Robert Salberg is the director of The Prom at Pentacle Theater. It runs Friday, March 1st through Saturday, March 24th. And there are matinee and evening performances. Check out the ticket situation at pentacletheater.org. Click on the tickets link and you'll go right there. I recommend you get your tickets early because Salberg shows always sell out. It's going to be a ton of fun. Go see The Prom, where love is love. Thank you so much, Robert Salberg, for joining us here on KMUZ Theater Talk. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Joining us in our next interview to tell us about The Revolutionists coming to the Majestic Theater in Corvallis, our assistant director, Danita Hamill, and actors, Senea Forbes and Corley Stanford. Stay with us. KMUZ Theater Talk continues right after this short break. We're speaking with Assistant Director Danita Hamill, actors Corley Stanford and Sanaya Forbes about the play The Revolutionists, which is opening at the Majestic Theater in Corvallis, March 8th through 17th. Welcome to Theater Talk, you guys. Thank, Thank you for having us. So Lauren Gunderson is a really hot property right now. She wrote this play, The Revolutionists. Tell us a little bit about the plot, Danita. What, uh, I mean, it's about the French Revolution, but it's about the women involved. Exactly. And it is a riveting play about four different women, four different stages in life coming together, eventually in sisterhood, um, with all the craziness in their world they they come together and have this sisterhood a bond that is really uh, engaging and wonderful to watch um all four of our our actresses are amazing at bringing these characters to life i'm just so proud of them all uh, they're all four he heroes and so um, yeah, it's it, there's a lot packed into not really a very long play, really, as far as the time goes. But um, these women are in the middle of a French Revolution, and they, you know, you have a playwright, you have an assassin, you have a former queen and a spy that hang out and um, try to beat back the extremists' insanity in the 1793 Paris. So it's a comedy, but I will tell you that you laugh so much during the show, but there are plenty of places where there are tears as well. 
So laughing your head off comes with the revolution, though, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I believe that that's what you will do. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Sinea Forbes, uh, mm -hmm. what character do you play? Do you play playwright, assassin, spy, or the well-known Marie Antoinette? So I am Oleon Petiguge, and she is the playwright, and she um, is is kind of the play starts and ends with her, um, and it takes place mostly in her office. And she's trying to write a play essentially about the revolution, and all of these other characters come in. The spy is a longtime friend. The assassin comes to her wanting like her last line that she can give as she's essentially killing the man that she's going to kill. And uh, then Marie Antoinette comes in and it it's all of these characters kind of coming in and uprooting her life and how the four of them find a way to fight the revolution together. And it's symbolic, right? Uh, oh, yeah. It's not real in terms of realistic drama, like kitchen cabinet drama. Yeah, it is. It is definitely more metaphorical in a way that mm -hmm. Gunderson, I feel like, is a lot of times with a more yeah. historical take. Um, but. But the play largely takes place in Oleom's mind. It, she's the one who's kind of constructing all of the interaction between all of these characters in her head. I see. I see. And Coralie, your character is perhaps a little more well-known, Charlotte Corday. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about her place in the story. So Charlotte Corday, uh, for those who don't know, was the young French revolutionary woman who assassinated Jacobin leader and journalist Jean Paul Marat uh, rather infamously um, in 1793. And so for her, that was her revolutionary act that she did to try and change the world. In the play, we get to learn a little bit more about Charlotte as a character. She she storms into Oleomp's office, um, demanding last words is what she wants. She says, I'm going to kill this man and I want last words that people won't forget. I want it to really stick in their memory. Um, and you get to see, uh, I think, in a way, she sort of represents some of the more extreme parts of the revolution. Um, people who are willing to make these very dramatic uh, sacrifices for what they see as the greater good. And and she's very passionate. Um, and she provides that sort of balance that the other characters can play off of as like, oh, my gosh, like Charlotte went very far. Is that as far is that the direction we want to go in order to to bring this revolution about? Or are there other ways to bring it about? And I assume her last words were not for Kane country. <laughs> um, unfortunately not. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, her last words are are currently a little bit up for debate, but uh, the play itself, Lauren Gunderson has a few different pitches that she goes with and and I do like her perspective on what the last words probably were. <laughs> Okay, that, that's great. We won't give too much away. And the other two characters that are not represented today, the Haitian feminist and Marie Antoinette. Yeah, Marianne Angel is um, our, essentially our activist against slavery um, and kind of represents that side of the revolution because there were revolutions happening in a lot of the French colonies at the time. Uh, and she represents not only that, but also kind of like the idea of of the feminine in the French Revolution. The reason her name is Marianne is because La Marianne was kind of like the idea of of rebellious femininity at the time in mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. And who is the fourth character? 
Well, you may have heard of her before. Her name is Marie Antoinette, I think is the, the proper <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> um, as, as we all know, she was a very both famous and infamous figurehead during the revolution. You know, she represented um, the extremely luxurious upper class that the Jacobins were in open war against at that point. Um, but in the play, she also represents how you don't have to choose between femininity and strength, how they can coexist in one person um, very beautifully, despite the fact that the world may see ribbons and, and her incredible hair and think, oh, that's a very soft person. You know, as we've seen historically and as is represented in the play, Marie Antoinette was a very active participant in the revolution and in her role. And she paid a terrible price as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Danita, um, what do you hope that audiences will take away from this show as opposed to uh, reading uh, a true to history uh, version of the French Revolution and the women involved in it? It's a great reminder of the history that we came from. I, I think the thing that I take away from it is that women are strong and women have made a difference in this world. And for me, the compelling thing is just the, the relationships between the women and how, you know, we band together and there's a lot we can accomplish in this world. So I don't know, maybe some encouragement that way. Um, and, and just a great night out to be, um, to see some great theater, great actors doing an, a fantastic job. What has been the biggest challenge, do you think, in mounting this production? I can't really think of any huge challenges. I think that our cast has come together so beautifully that uh, we just kind of watch the magic happen, really. They come and bring a lot to the table. From the get-go, we um, have been so impressed with the chemistry between each one of them you know, it's just been a joy. I, in fact, it just not even needing a lot of direction. They're just, they instinctively are taking these characters and bringing them to life in such a powerful and beautiful way. What made whoever picked this play, pick the, the play? It Was it the director who picked it? Yes. Lee Matthews Bach is our wonderful director. And mm -hmm. she read this play a while ago and told me about it. She read it and she said, I have to direct this play. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the thing that's so great about it is, um, um, you know, she wrote down um, that it's a dream tweaked comedy about legacy, art, activism, feminism, and chosen sisters, and how we actually go about changing the world. And I think that's, that's the basis of the play. And I think that really spoke to her. And that was a story that she felt needed to be told. And so here we are today, uh, looking forward to putting this on stage very soon. Well, Senea and Corley, I'm going to ask you guys the same question. We'll start with Corley. What do you really like and appreciate about Lauren Gunderson's writing? I appreciate, like like Senea said, that a lot of the writing is kind of metaphorical. Um, I like the dreamlike quality of it, that she easily transitions between genres, between states, like the actors that, that the actors are in physically, as well as mentally and emotionally. Um, I kind of love the roller coaster you get to go on that really puts you in different characters' shoes. 
and I would say her writing is is sharp, like like a knife. <laughs> I mean, there are there are moments that just kind of she'll be dancing around the different perspective of an issue and then she'll put a line in that just like cuts right to the quick for a character and it, it gives you pause it kind of stops the comedy and moves to the drama for a minute and I I really love that she gets your attention with those um, throughout the entire play and it just I don't know for me it creates a really rewarding experience both to act it out and to see it. Sinea what's your take on Gunderson's writing and the value that it has for you? As an actor, at least this character has been so interesting to play because Lauren Gunderson has written her with so many layers. It's amazing how she takes these historical characters that maybe don't have a lot of kind of direct writing about them and turns them into these like layered people that you get to present on stage. The writing is quick and it's funny and everybody has their own identity, but it feels really true to who that character was historically. And she throws in so many little details that you know that she did her research. There's so many, like the name of a play that Oleomp says is a name of the play that Oleomp actually wrote about her fangirling over Marie Antoinette. Just like little details like that, I think are so wonderful to kind of discover as you go through the play. And it brings out the play, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you have a favorite moment in this show, Zanea? Oh, gosh. I have so many favorite moments. Most of them are with Marie Antoinette because Lauren, the actress who plays it, is just so hilarious. Um, my personal <laughs> favorite moment is my character is on trial um, and just gives a series of um, offhanded mentions about Les Mis. Uh, and it's delightful <laughs> to get to perform because I get to kind of throw in little modern things for the audience to play with. <laughs> and how about you, Coralie? Do you have a, a spot that you look forward to performing every night? I would say yes. Honestly, it's it might sound strange, but my favorite scene to perform is actually when my character is in jail after she's committed the assassination. She's realized what she has, feels is her purpose. And there's just this kind of a moment where she almost like she could unravel a little bit and she's kind of reckoning with the consequences both good and bad of such a dramatic act and mm -hmm. for me just seeing her in that place is so fun to play honestly there's just a lot of extra depth there that I love that Lauren puts in well Danita as a fellow director we sit in the rehearsal room behind the desk and watch things grow and happen ultimately we sit in the audience and see the fruits of our labors what's your guilty pleasure when you watch this show I laugh so hard. I feel like through the whole thing, I think from day one, it became a joke because from the very beginning, they had me laughing and literally crying. To this day, every rehearsal that we have, I still every time cry and laugh my my heart out. And um, I, I don't even have a favorite. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, what can I say would be my favorite moment? There are so many favorite moments and um, from all of the characters they're all equally delightful each character is so endearing um, so I don't know I'm just really proud I'm really proud of, of what they have put together and what they continue to bring mm -hmm. and I'm just um, excited for others to finally be able to see it and enjoy it as much as we have been enjoying it the Revolutionist plays at the Majestic Theater in Corvallis, March 8th through 17th. It's written by Lauren Gunderson, 
directed by uh, Lee Matthews Bach and assistant directed by Danita Hamill, who's been with us here on Theater Talk, along with actors Sinea Forbes and Coralie Stanford, who play two of the four women who are the revolutionists during the French Revolution and really bring the laughter and the drama to this show. Thank you so much, Danita, Sinea, and Corley for joining us here on Theater Talk. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. In today's final interview segment, Anne and I talk with Jeremiah Price, the director of Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose, opening at Corbin University March 7th. We'll be back with more Theater Talk in just a moment. So stay with us. We're talking with Jeremiah Price, who's directing Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose, which opens at Corbin University Theater March 7th and plays through March 17th. Welcome to Theater Talk again, Jeremiah. Hi, nice to be with you. Yes, always looking forward to it. So good to have you here again. Quick question for you about Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose. I know this is not the Disney version of the story. It's based on the original tale of Sleeping Beauty by Charles Peralt and the Brothers Grimm. Uh, how does it differ from what we might have seen previously? Absolutely. Yeah, I know that that's a question that a lot of audiences are going to have coming to our production. And you're right. A lot of folks are more familiar with Sleeping Beauty from the 1959 uh, film, which in, includes the Princess Aurora and the witch Maleficent. I am a big fan of that film. I'm also a fan of the original writings. This play is more based on the writings of Charles Peralt and the Brothers Grimm. Uh, Max Bush, a current playwright, has really brilliantly woven this story together. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this play, where it has an interesting moral aspect to it, but it also contains all of the interesting, exciting aspects of, of a fairy tale. So the witch is not Maleficent. That's a Disney property. Um, in this production, her name is Erda. And the princess has her original name of Briar Rose. And it's a fairly similar story with the princess being born. Um, but we see more um, clearly that the queen is able to have a child because of the magic of the fairies. They have granted that to her, specifically Erida, the green fairy, uh, who later curses the princess uh, when she's not invited to the ball. So a fairly similar idea there. The really interesting um, and exciting deviation is that the play actually begins with the prince, who we'll later see with the princess. He stumbles upon the ruins of this kingdom and this garden overgrown with uh, briars and, and thorns. And the uh, narrator uh, speaks to him. She's a fairy. She speaks to him and they she starts to tell the story and we're transported back in time. So the castle comes back to life and the prince and the narrator uh, go through the tale together um, before uh, later in the play, the prince, it, we're back to the modern day and the prince is able to join the tale. So it's uh, that that's one of the most interesting deviations, I think, is that um, we start in the future. It goes back to the past and we, we work our way back to the back to the present day. So um, but uh, the spinning wheel, the town, the king, the queen, um, a lot of it is very similar to the to the Disney piece as well. Well, it is a really cool old story. I remember 
reading the Brothers Grimm version when I was a child, I've always found this story really enchanting. And darn it, Maleficent isn't in this story. Um, that she's my favorite bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seriously. I can tell you, I can, I can very nicely assure you, her name isn't Maleficent. However, all of the other elements will be there: the draping costumes, the light-up staff. Um, in fact, in this version, I'll tell you this for your listeners uh, who are interested in coming to the play. She actually battles the prince at the end of the play and she has not only a long sword but she has a dagger as well and she Ooh. wields both um Ooh. and so Ooh. absolutely absolutely so every every aspect that you're looking for from the witch it will all be present in our production her name isn't maleficent but you can be expecting everything else oh that's cool that there would be go. great uh, i just love the beginning of this this is so different from the movie that everyone knows. And so it will set everyone in the audience into a different place. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you see, it's a little bit of a darker tale. We can see that the castle is broken down, um, that the garden is overgrown. Um, but as soon as uh, they begin to set into the tale, audiences will be greeted with that same familiar feeling of the town gathering for the birth of the princess and uh, the king and queen in the celebratory nature and then later the witch coming in because she was uninvited so it begins in an exciting place where we're thinking hmm, this is something different i haven't seen but then the old familiar tale will begin to begin to set in as we see some very recognizable characters how are you going to stage that you know what it's it's very interesting um there's a, a castle and a, a pond as part of the set um one of the interesting elements and i'm sure a lot of the directors listening will will recognize this challenge one of the interesting things is that uh it's a very um, musical magical tale but the author i think in his creativity and wisdom has left a lot of that open for the discretion of the director so there's several places where um it says the town engages in a festival right music begins to play and everyone dances you know and it, he just kind of leaves it there for you and, and tells you what happens next um, then later, the prince and princess are supposed to dance together in this dream and whatnot. So I think that is a challenge that I've always enjoyed um, in theater is when things are just kind of suggested from the author and then you are um, tasked with kind of building narrative around that. And I I love theater. Um, I've directed theater for about a decade now. Um, but one of the things, one of my favorite challenges is I also love dance. And so I love to bring dance into straight theater, um, whenever I can, but I don't, I don't bring dance in unless I feel it's going to aid the narrative. And I, I remember years ago, my first exposure to that was, um, I saw, um, Fahrenheit 451 down at the, it was the Lord Liebrich theater down in Eugene. Now it's the Oregon contemporary theater. But um, to aid with the the piece, they had some um, subtle dancing that was brought into the the narrative, and I just I thought it was so brilliant. And so I've I've spent uh, some of my career kind of trying to emulate that kind of natural transition between dialogue and a dance piece. And it sounds like this production is tailor made for that. So tell us how you're bringing dance and. Uh, music into the uh, production. Do you have a musical director? Is there a choreographer that's assisting you? How is that happening? I, I do it myself. Um, 
I begin with I begin with the narrative. I don't want it to stray from the narrative. So I find an inline, um, some so a piece of dialogue that someone says that I feel like could kick off that natural transition to the music and dancing. So, for instance, in the festival, the king says, "I, I command you to celebrate with us," right? And and then it, the music kicks up, and um, then I, I find one character who might be able to begin the, the dance piece, right? And then. Some, somewhere other characters are able to join in. And after I've put that narrative together, then I set about the task of looking for um, a piece of uh, classical music, of public domain music, or something that I could mm -hmm. write away for permission to use. Um, and I begin the process of listening to, you know, maybe a hundred songs if you have to, um, listening to pieces until you find something that could work with that narrative. You know, I, I like to start with the narrative then build everything else around that so that it doesn't stray from the storytelling or feel out of place. And then do you choreograph it? I do. Yes, I do. And so once you have the narrative, then you have the musical piece that has the different themes uh, that you need. Then you, the, then um, it seems funny, but then the last step is to make sure, and you know, you get images of, of things. The music inspires certain movements if you're someone who loves to dance. And so once I have everything um, once I have the music, I have the narrative, then I begin to to choreograph the dance. The big ballroom piece in this play um, is about five and a half minutes, and it is it's called Aeschylus. It's an original piece that I've choreographed for the play, and the prince and princess are ballroom dancing together. There's seven couples that form this grand waltz circle. And um, after I worked on that for about a month, I can say that I'm, I'm extremely proud of the original choreography that's in it. And it is all of the exciting, sensual, um, fascinating um, kind of kind of love story um, ballroom scene that anybody would want to come and see in a fairy tale. So I, I love that process. And um, that's kind of how I do it is to start with the narrative, find the music and then um, choreograph uh, movements that are going to go with that. Perfect. Oh, that sounds really great. How, how uh, big a cast do you have for this extravaganza, Jeremiah? There are 20 individuals in the cast. The script calls for 13, but, um, you know, that's that's the other interesting thing about this is when I sat down um, with our team to to start talking about this play, we wanted to show how the decisions that the king and queen makes uh, affect the rest of the kingdom. So when the king decides we're going to burn all the spinning wheels, right? Well, this is an agrarian economy, so that is not going to no. um, be without its impacts, right? Yeah. And so right. there are a, a lot of townspeople and other fairies in, that I've added to the story that can kind of show that devastation. And so we we see in the beginning, there's this happy, lively town. And then after the witch's curse descends and the king makes his decisions, we see how that affects the town. We see how that affects the princess as she's trapped in the garden. And just, just kind of the fear and iron grip that the king has over the kingdom, we kind of see how that kind of descends. So I needed a little bit bigger cast in order to portray that. And so and it, it, it's worked out in a lot of ways. It's given the opportunity for more students to be a part of the play. And it has um, added more characters to be in the dance pieces to make uh, the fairy tale come to life. We really paint the entire world through the use of a lot of different characters on stage. This is an old story. It's uh -huh. uh, it's a classic story, and people have been reading it and taking the messages of this story away for decades, eons. What do you hope today's audiences are going to take away from this production? 
it, it's it's not as cut and dry as you may think that this story can be, right? Where there's a witch and there's a royal family and she's the bad guy and they're the good guys, right? It, it paints this very interesting question because in this production, the entire reason that she curses the princess is because the king and queen refuse to make any changes about the way that they're ruling their kingdom. They're burning the forests, they're hunting the animals, and in return, the witch is retaliating using her magic. And so it, uh, as you watch it, it forces you to ask some interesting questions about which character you think is right and wrong. And in what ways are they both wrong? And in what case are they both are, are both of their actions kind of justified? So it's an interesting story that is not quite as cut and dry as we're used to with our classic um, kind of popular fairy tales. The, the villain, the heroes, they're all very three-dimensional. And, you know, at, at Corbin Theater, we try not to have any kind of um, flat characters. We try to make sure that every character, even some of the worst villains, we try to make sure that those are real people with real interesting intentions. And, you know, you can make up your mind when you watch the story about who you agree with. So I think it's I think that's a very interesting story. Some people may come and they'll sim sympathize with the with the fairy and some of them will sympathize with the royal family. And um, it, it paints an interesting moral question. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this play, because of the interesting uh, moral questions that it presents. But also, I felt there were opportunities uh, for the sword fighting and the dancing and all of these exciting elements that people come expecting from a fairy tale. So I think it's a very well-rounded play. And I hope um, audiences walk away feeling that it was exciting, it was fun, it was great for the whole family, but also it, it had them uh, ask some interesting questions as they watched. So the Brothers Grimm and Peralt can be kind of dark in their writing. Mm -hmm as I'm sure you're aware. Yes. What audience age range are you suggesting this play for? You know, that's an interesting question. When I first read it, I was thinking maybe 10 and up, not because of anything inappropriate. There's nothing inappropriate in this tale. Um, the author's very nicely woven it all together uh, for young audiences. I think that some of the subject matter is kind of serious. And, and by serious, I just mean more maybe adult-oriented, no, nothing inappropriate about it. But, you know, as we've put the dances together and we put the fight scenes together and I've seen these lavish costumes that are being produced for the show, the more I say, you know, I really feel that the entire family would enjoy this. Mm -hmm. There's a few slower parts where it's just dialogue as some of these kind of moral quandaries are chewed over a bit. I really, I really think uh, when all is said and done, I think it's it's fast paced and exciting enough that I think the I think the entire family will really enjoy it. Good, Sleeping Beauty should be for the whole family. Absolutely, and I love that you're bringing a whole different side, like the the burning the forest. That's mm -hmm. really right now kind of. Those are contemporary issues, yes. uh, if you will. You know, it's like, okay, you're screwing up the environment. Uh, mm -hmm. You're affecting our economy. Instead of helping our community grow, you're destroying our livelihoods. Yeah. You know, you need yeah. to make some changes. Well, no, sure. Uh, I think I'm doing it just fine. Thank you. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Absolutely. And, and, you know, actually, speaking of contemporary issues, one of the concerns about Sleeping Beauty that's uh, arisen in the past few years is the idea of the prince coming along and just kissing this sleeping woman, right? Isn't that an interesting idea that some have said, oh, this is this is an inappropriate story. Well, um, it's assault. Max, 
Absolutely. <laughs> Max, Max Bush um, has, has very, he's very brilliantly addressed that in this play for modern audiences. And that is the prince and princess meet for the first time in a dream. And she meets him and they, they dance together. And then at the end of this piece, she kisses him. And then when he approaches her um, after battling the witch for her, he says, I return your kiss. And then he, oh. then, he then he kisses her and then 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 she well I don't don't want to give away the end but um <laughs> so if anybody has it's not seen, assault no I think he did a wonderful job of of painting the story in a way that's appropriate for modern audiences I think that's lovely I'm a romantic myself and sure. you know uh the stage kiss is uh is important if it helps tell the story in the right way yeah you're you're better off for it so um, absolutely yeah Okay. Well, Jeremiah Price is the director of Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose at Corbin University's Theater. It's their spring play. It's written by Max Bush, and it's based on the classic story of Sleeping Beauty and the tales written by Charles Perrault and the Brothers Grimm. It plays March 7th through March 17th at Corbin University. Uh, there are evening performances and uh, matinees. You can get tickets at corbin.edu slash arts slash theater. There's a link to purchase tickets. Uh, we encourage you to go and see the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Jeremiah Price, for joining us here on Theater Talk to tell us all yeah. about it. Yes. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's time to wind up today's KMUZ Theater Talk program. Thank you for joining us. Next week at 9 a.m., you can tune into Talking About Art with Joel Zach. KMUZ Theater Talk is a proud member of the Mid-Valley Theater Network. KMUZ Theater Talk comes your way at 9 a.m. the first and third Friday of the month on your radio or smart speaker at 100.7 and 88.5 FM on your favorite radio app, or streaming live at kmuz.org. You can also listen to KMUZ Theater Talk programs anytime, wherever you get your podcasts. Ed and I will return March 15th with a brand new KMUZ Theater Talk program. Meanwhile, check out our KMUZ Theater Talk Facebook page for news and updates about live theater in the Mid-Willamette Valley. If you haven't yet joined in to support Theater Talk, and the rest of KMUZ's great community radio programs, please go to KMUZ.org right now to join the KMUZ Power Up campaign with a monthly donation that fits your budget. And thanks. Until next time, we'll, we'll see, see you in, in the, the front, front row. row.